This is Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager, Canada's national source for the latest agronomic research, crop production, and technology trends. You've tuned in to hear conversations about relevant research, best production practices, and everything in between. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. I'm Alex Bernard, Associate Editor and your host for today's episode. Today we are talking about wireworms. Haley Catton, field crop entomologist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge, Alberta, discusses what makes wireworms such a tricky pest to control. She also provides information on broflanolide, an active ingredient registered last fall with Health Canada's Pest Management Regulatory Agency, or PMRA, and pest management tips for growers. Wireworms can be found at a variety of depths in the soil depending on the time of year and life cycle stage. Recent research published by Christine Norona, a research scientist out of AAFC's Charlottetown Research and Development Center in PEI, shows that horizontal movement in the soil can occur very quickly. Wireworms can move up to 3.6 meters in about 24 to 48 hours, she says. Understanding wireworm activity in the soil is naturally challenging, as they are underground and can't be easily seen or tracked. Norona's research looks at wireworm behavior when seeking out food sources Norona's research looks at wireworm behavior when seeking out food sources in the summer and demonstrates the pests can move quickly from plant to plant underground to feed on soil-bound vegetables, tubers, and root crops. Please note, the interview featured in this episode took place in February of this year, and as such, further research and studies may have been published specifically on the topic of brothlanolide and its effects. Before we kick it off, here's a word from our sponsor. Each farm is different. Every field is unique. With the Climate Field View platform, you get all the information you need about your farm to confidently make the right decisions to maximize your return on every acre. Climate Field View seamlessly collects, stores, and visualizes field data, and it's all available in one place. Start collecting the information you need to grow your next best season today. For more information, visit climatefieldview.ca or talk to your Field View dealer. So we're talking about the larval stage of the click beetle and wireworms themselves are not worms. They're like I said, they're larval beetles and they live in the soil and they still eat plants in the soil. So there are multiple species in Western Canada, hundreds of non-pest species and about four to five main pest species. So what's the current status? There are no surveys done at all for wireworms. The damage is really hard to pin onto wireworms because uh, you have to dig around to find them. But we know from experience that certain fields have serious infestations. Certain fields are very problematic and other fields, they don't seem to be there. And then there's a whole bunch of fields that are maybe problems, maybe not. Okay. So it's really up to a producer to know their, to know their land, basically to know if it's a problem for them. There's no black and white with wireworms, unfortunately. The whole oh. thing is complex. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, That's I know. Right? The easiest ones to deal with. I know, I know. In oh. terms of which crops and regions are most severely affected, I work mostly in cereals. Okay. <clears throat> Cereal crops are affected a lot. Uh, also, some pulses and root crops like potatoes, carrots. Because we're talking about a soil dwelling pest, right? Anything that's yeah. in the soil is vulnerable to getting eaten, whether that's the roots of a cereal crop or the tubers on a potato. We see that Southern Alberta and Southern Saskatchewan are, are kind of hotspots for this, but there are other areas of the province too, where sometimes up in the Peace River region, 
just depends on the field. That's what I tell everybody, just depends on the field. And sometimes fields right next to each other, one will have a huge problem and one won't. So we have so much to figure out about these insects. Yeah, they overwinter in the soil, correct? Yeah, they do, but they have multiple year life cycles. So we're talking about several years in the soil, for sure. Okay, so it's kind of tricky. Like you say, you have to find them by digging around, but it's even tricky to know before they come up that you've got them, I'm guessing. Yeah, so for a potato producer, how they would usually find out they have a problem is that their potatoes are getting downgraded. They're seeing holes, right? They're seeing rotten holes in their tubers. But by that time, it's too late, right? Like the damage has been done. Yeah. A cereal producer... And lots of times those are the same people, right? So people growing potatoes and cereals, what they would see is crop thinning in the spring. So after a crop is seeded, the wireworms can eat the seeds, prevent them from germinating. Or once the seedling is germinated, the wireworms can kill the seedling through root feeding. So then a cereal producer would see patches of a thin or missing crop in their field after seeding. Okay. Now, You mentioned that there are a bunch of benign species of wireworms. Are they all classified as wireworms or is that just the harmful ones? Well, that's a good question. Uh, They're all in the same family of beetles called Elateridae, which technically are all wireworms. We're talking hundreds of species, right? Okay. Uh, Just on the prairies. So you could call them all wireworms, but that's why I try to be careful with my language and say pest wireworms. Okay. Right? Because only some of these species are actually in our crop fields and actually chewing on our crops. Okay, that's good to know then. And the reason they have that common name is, well, I guess they look like a worm, even though they're not technically (laughs) a worm, but they kind of have a hard body. Most of the species have a kind of a crunchy, (laughs) hard (laughs) exoskeleton that makes them look kind of like a wire. Yeah, they look kind of plated. Plated, yeah. Mm -hmm. And some species have harder bodies than others, but they all seem to have that wire-like appearance. Okay. Broflanolide. What's the news with that? I know it was recently registered. I know a lot of people are excited about that. Yeah. So what's been missing for a number of years in crop production is a registered pesticide that will kill wireworms. So in recent years, the ones that have been registered in cereals and pulses and, and even in potatoes have been effective at protecting the crops through paralyzing the wireworms or repelling them, like pushing them away in the soil but they have been killing them, right? So that means that those same wireworms, because they live for multiple years, are there in your soil just waiting for next year's crop. So that would mean a producer would require consistent applications every year, even while the wireworm populations build up and build up because there's nothing killing them. So what broflanolide has shown, there's one published study on broflanolide so far because it's a pretty new chemical. And it, it has shown that it kills, it reduces wireworm populations which is different than, like I said, the the other recent chemicals that have been on the market. So that means that if you can reduce your wireworm populations, that means maybe you don't need to apply next year, apply chemicals next year, right? So you're kind of knocking back the numbers of wireworms. And that's what broflanolide seems to be bringing, according to what I've seen in in the published study. Yeah, it's probably a bit early to say, but could it be a replacement for lindane? Well, I think that is totally possible based on the one study that's been published and and my conversations with researchers who have unpublished studies. The one published study showed that it was killing 70% of the wireworms in in the plots where both broflanolide was treated 
that was a seed treatment on wheat, but 70% is a really nice knockback number. And that's very similar to what we would see with lending back when okay. it was still registered. That's great news. Uh, and what's, what's really interesting about broflanolide too, is that it's at least in cereals, right? You would apply it as a seed treatment and it has a long enough residual to kill the new hatchlings that would hatch from eggs several months after seeding. So that means you, by uh, seed treating in the spring, you've killed last year's wireworms, right? But also you're killing this year's as well, because the new hatchlings are going to be killed by that chemical too. And potatoes, broflanolide is registered as a inferro treatment. Okay. So uh, I think there's really good reason to believe that it would have very similar impacts as a seed treatment would. But we just haven't seen any published data yet on that. But it's coming, as it's, I hear from my colleagues, it's coming. The data. This is good news. Yeah, it really could be, you know, anything that would reduce populations. So provide, first of all, provide within year crop protection mm-hmm. and reduce populations. Those two things combined mean it has huge potential for within season and multi-year wireworm control. Yes. And, and as a potato grower, you wouldn't even have to use a tool like that in potatoes necessarily, right? You could use it in your wheat field the year before potatoes, reduce the populations so that the year that you do plant potatoes, there are less wireworms in your field. Yeah, multi-year protection. Yeah, in theory. In theory. Hopefully that, yeah, yeah. And there's good reason to believe that's what it'll be. It'll be very interesting to see how producers feel that the product works for them. Yes. It'll be exciting, like I say, to see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, the potential is huge, right? Wireworm has been such a huge problem in different regions of the country, like in mm-hmm. Eastern Canada. The maritime provinces have had such a huge, huge, huge problem that a tool that could knock back populations and protect crop could be a game changer. Yeah, now, if it works, as has happened a fair few times when new chemicals come on the market, there's the potential for overuse. Yeah. How can growers use it responsibly? Yes, that's such a good question. And I think most people would agree that we want this tool to be used when it's needed and not used when it's not needed, right? We don't want people spending money on something that they don't need. And that's where I would hope science can catch up a bit and that we, we don't really have a good way of monitoring wireworms reliably and we also don't have economic thresholds for them and keep in mind we're talking about multiple different species too with different behaviors so it's a very very complicated problem to to try to solve so right now it really is what a grower thinks that they need Mm -hmm. and I hope that with further research that we can provide more guidance than that to help farmers make more informed decisions but at the very least though I would recommend a producer to, or an agronomist to be out in the field and looking for wireworm damage and try to get the exact specimens, try to catch them in the act. Because at least in cereals, for example, sometimes it's something else causing the problem. Like in cereals, it could be cutworms that are causing patches of mortality in your field. So unless you catch that insect red-handed damaging your crop, you really don't know what's there. So at the very, at the very least, I hope that people will scout to save themselves money, right? Also, we don't know the non-target impacts of such an effective insecticide, right? You have so many beneficial insects in the soil, like ground beetles, for example. We don't want to be altering their populations unless unless there's good reason to do so. It's very interesting. Actually, one thing I'd like to share is that, you know, I gave a talk about wireworms and it was very, very interesting. This was at the Alberta Agronomy Update and producers were writing in the chat. Some people are very affected by wireworms, but someone else wrote in and said, you know, 
I don't see damage from these things in my field. Like, I think it's a little bit overblown. (laughs) And I said, this is exactly why we're doing this research because we don't want, we don't want people to prophylactically blanket fields with chemical when there isn't damage happening. We need more information about where they are. Like, are they in your field? Okay. Are they at such low levels that they're not worth the cost of control? Or is it worth it to invest in the chemical treatment? Yeah, because I can understand the desire to, if you think you might have them, be proactive. But at the same time, that's also opening yourself up to other risks. Yeah, and I guess you can think of it like, well, one way to think about chemicals is insurance, right? You could say, well, I'm not sure what's going to happen, so I will invest in this treatment to prevent it from happening. But there are hidden costs with that, right? Not only the cost of the chemical and the application, right? But any of the non-target effects to beneficial insects that might be controlling some other pests that you have in your field that that you weren't thinking of, right? I guess an insurance salesperson would say better safe than sorry, but as entomologists, we're trying to move, try to shift that perception of, yes, there is something to lose by applying the stuff when you don't need to. And when I say this stuff, I mean all insecticides, not proflanolides specifically. When you need it, use it. When you don't need it, don't use it. It really is up to the farmer to decide and as scientists, I view our job is to provide as much information to the farmers so that they can, they make the final call, right? Is it worth this financial risk? But our job as scientists is to say, well, if you do this, this could happen. Or you don't need the chemical until you have this many wireworms. And that's what we need to work on. Yeah. Is there work being done on either conducting surveys or determining thresholds? Or is there a step before that that has to happen? There's so much work going on with wireworms right now. It's very interesting. In terms of thresholds, I'm hoping to start working on that in the prairies, pending funding. I know people around the world have tried to do it, and things are moving slowly forward. Certain species of, of the wireworms in their adult stage, when they're beetles, click mm-hmm. beetles, the females will produce pheromones that will attract the males for mating. Okay. So one thing that people have done around the world is synthesize those pheromones so that we can put them in traps. And a bunch of beetles come to those traps so you can easily monitor what species are around and kind of how many. So there's been a major advancements on that in the prairies. I'm part of a team. We isolated new pheromones for two new species that those tools weren't available before. So there is work ongoing for sure. But the research needs to keep going because, I mean, we're talking about a patchy pest that's made up of multiple species. And that makes it very different than a pests like wheat midge or, or wheat stem sawfly or something. That's just one species, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about multiple species with different life cycles, different behaviors, different feeding behaviors. Some of them need to mate. Some of them don't need to mate. One of our pest species is all females. There's never been a male found ever, ever. Like the more you learn <laughs> about these things, the more interesting they get biologically. But as a producer, I could see how you'd be like, <laughs> oh, well, like, just give me the seed treatment, you know? <laughs> yeah. one thing I want to mention is that we have a field guide coming out a brand new field guide about wireworms on the prairies for producers so that's coming out this year I guess in the short term I see huge potential for a chemical like broflanolide but long term we need to really continue with our integrated pest management research about thresholds right about learning what species we have and how they behave yeah if there's so many varieties like have you identified which varieties are the damaging ones yet? And will there be more that show up? Well, we think so. We think we've identified. Like all you have to do is go to fields with damage, right? And mm-hmm. see 
see what you find. Right. So that's how we found on the prairies, but about four main damaging species. Okay. Four out of a hundred is, is much more manageable. Like four out of 300 more like, <laughs> oh gosh. You know what? Here's a big difference on the prairies. The species that we have our pest wireworms are all mm-hmm. native species. Oh, okay. But in the maritime provinces and in BC, they have European invasive wireworm species, totally different genuses. So that means in some ways that's good because they can benefit from European research mm-hmm. that's been going on. But in, in other ways, you're like, oh man, invasive species, that's, those are hard to manage. Yeah, just another issue to add to the pile for wireworms. Yeah, so really it's a complex of pests. Mm-hmm. Pest complex, not like we use one word, right? We use wireworms, but depends where you are, depends on what soil type you're in, which species we're actually talking about here. Integrated pest management for wireworms, what does that look like at the moment? Well, any kind of integrated pest management program, you have to know what pest you're working with, mm-hmm. right? So for wireworms, we're kind of at the basics. Like if you suspect damage in your field, is it from wireworms? Got to go to that field at the right time of year, which is usually spring, and dig around. And Are you finding them? Are you seeing them feeding on the plant? If that's a yes, then okay, we're on the right track. They are causing you a problem. And, and I say that because I've had many calls and photos sent to me of uh, producers being concerned about wireworm damage, but it's not, it's not wireworm. It's a cutworm or it's some other, some other insect. Step one in any integrated pest management system is to know what you're working with. Mm-hmm. what pests that you're dealing with. And then monitoring is very important. So is it just that part of the field or is it the whole field? And that's how a producer, at least at this point, can decide whether or not to invest in a seed treatment, for example, if it's a cereal or a pulse, or maybe they're scouting this year for next year's potatoes, mm-hmm. right? And then they can decide this year, okay, next year I better put in an inferral spray of one of these chemicals. Mm-hmm. So scouting, I guess that's the most important thing. The only really reliable control we have in crop protection and control are chemicals at the moment, but we're hoping as research goes forward to have new tools available. Well, yeah, it sounds like with all the research that's going on, these things will start coming to the forefront. Hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Right? Like being, being an entomologist, you have to be a bit of a surgeon because <laughs> you want to surgically remove your pest insect species, right? Mm-hmm. But without touching much of the non-targets at all. So I think maybe a more historic mentality would have been, let's sterilize this field. Let's get rid of, let's kill everything in that field. But we know from research how important those other insects in in the agro-ecosystem are. Hmm. They eat weed seeds, they eat pests, they eat and they poop, right? So that means they're cycling nutrients. Uh, They're very, very important. So as an entomologist, yeah, like I said, we want to be surgical. Like how can we get in there and reduce the populations of the ones we don't want and leave everything else kind of untouched? That's the future for insect pest control. It's exciting, but yeah, that is complex. Yeah. I like to use the analogy of, like I said, surgery, but like laparoscopic surgery, you know, you know, the surgeries that doctors do now, they have like the tiniest little scars or incisions and they use a machine and they just go in and like, do whatever they do and then get out instead of like cut it open, you know? Yeah. Less open heart surgery and more laser or laparoscopic or non-invasive. Non-invasive. Yeah. We are protecting an agro ecosystem, right? That's like so many factors, like all interacting, like food webs and everything. So we just want to get in, change the part that we need to and get out, allow it to heal. 
Thanks for tuning in to Inputs, the podcast by Top Crop Manager. To catch up on all of our other episodes, visit topcropmanager.com slash podcasts.